Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor David Utah, who is a professor of education and psychology at Northwestern University. His research focuses on STEM education with a particular emphasis on the role of spatial thinking in STEM outcomes. He directs the Spatial Intelligence and Learning Center at Northwestern. Welcome, David. Welcome. Um, thank you. Uh, I want to start with one of your older papers um, entitled Exploring and Enhancing Spatial Thinking, mm -hmm. Links to Achievement in Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics, in which you say, although neglected in traditional education, spatial thinking plays a critical role in achievement in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, STEM fields. Uh, and you say we review this relationship and investigate the malleability of spatial thinking. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? So you, you're finding some connections between just sort of spatial thinking and training and so on to, to STEM? Yes, that's, that's the long-term goal, right. Um, let me start. You said you were an engineer, right, by training? <laughs> I was a long time ago. I left engineering in the 90s, David. So. Well, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, well, the U.S. faces a, a big shortage of engineers, as you, as you know. Um, right. And uh, one of the factors that may limit people's access is the high demand for spatial thinking, for thinking about relations among places when you... And let's just take the classic example, building a bridge. You have to think yeah. about the relations between forces, how the bridge might sway in the wind and things like that, and then compensate for that as you build. And it requires thinking about where things are in space and how they might be in space. And mm -hmm. um, some of the most famous scientific insights have often involved spatial thinking. One good example, classic example, everybody who's taking chemistry knows is uh, Kekulé dreaming about the, the snake when he was trying to figure out the shape of the benzene molecule. Yeah. Allegedly he had this dream and it was a spatial insight and the loop of the thing made him think, Oh, it's connected. And then he thought about how the bend the um, hexagon. 
mm. or the DNA molecule. They um, so scientists need to be able to think spatially, and engineers too. And so, um, as, I, as I said in the article, it's not part of traditional education. Everybody says it's important. Very few people teach it. And we're trying yeah. to, to change that. Uh, it certainly can be taught as early as preschool. And the malleability is really important because uh, a lot of people think that it's sort of something you're born with and not that much you can do about it. Um, we joke about getting lost all the time and things like that. And we giggle like it's, you know, no big deal, but it is malleable. It does respond to experience and training uh, to quite a substantial degree. So that we had reviewed over 200 research studies that yeah. looked at spatial training in a variety of contexts, everything from playing video games to, uh, in one case, dress design and anything that was spatially demanding. And we did find that there was a, a pretty substantial gain. And so um, there have now been studies that have actually linked this malleability to some aspects of STEM achievement. I would say that research is still in its formative stage because that's, that's a hard thing to prove that some, so, go ahead. Yeah. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Um, the, the first one is, uh, so there are two things right uh, there. One is, can we measure an aptitude to, to spatial thinking? Uh, in other words, you know, whoever is going into STEM, can we measure whether they have an aptitude to spatial thinking, in which case they might do better in STEM fields? Uh, that's one. Uh, the other thing is, okay, so you don't measure aptitude at intake. Uh, I think what you're arguing here is that it doesn't really matter. You can train them uh, and they would become better in STEM. Or is it both? It's, um, it's almost yeah. certainly both. Um, okay. And I can, I can address that a little bit empirically. So uh, on average, mechanical engineers were about 1.25 standard deviations greater than the American average. Hmm. And the average effect of training was about 0.3 standard deviations. Um, right. We could choose stronger effects than the average. So um, although we can't take anybody and give them the spatial aptitude that is characteristic of engineers, uh, hmm. we can shift the population over so that um, people have the aptitude. So mm. we, we, we said in the paper that we thought with the basic training that we would have, it could be double the number of people who meet that, that kind of high standard. Now, I also wanna say that although spatial thinking is correlated with being an engineer or STEM, I don't see it as a, as a limiting factor so much. I think um, people are not necessarily born engineers, early experiences, and what they what they study in school, I think matter most. So, so you would say uh, think about spatial thinking, sort of a native skill, uh, regardless of the profession that you go into. It appears to have beneficial effects. Uh, uh, we, you said that we don't do that in the U.S. that well. Do we know, you know, some of the leading sort of education uh, countries like Finland or other Scandinavian countries? Uh, do we know what uh, whether they, they do anything along these lines there? It's an excellent question. 
Um, Finland, not that I know of formally, but there's a lot of informal spatial play for preschoolers. Um, Singapore, in their mathematics curriculum, I think it's it's part of it. It's not emphasized as as you know exclusively spatial, but uh, I think there's more of it than here. The um, it doesn't have to be like a separate module. Like let's do spatial today. It's um, part of everyday thinking, in, particularly for young children. Uh, many of the games that kids play, like blocks, something as simple as blocks, or moving in space, even hopscotch, whatever, are spatial. And the teacher or the parent can, can point out, oh, look where you moved, and look at this, and how would it look if you went to the other side? So there are activities that are part of children's lives, but perhaps we don't take advantage of them and see them as educational opportunities so much. And, you know, it can be part of regular playful learning. Right. Right. And so, so, so you would say, let's shift the curve to the right yes. uh, through is sort of early education in this, in this area. Right. And it clearly has some beneficial effects, regardless of the professions that you go into you know, my own experience, it's interesting. Um, you know, my dad is a professor of engineering. Uh, he retired uh, a long time ago. Um, and, you know, I got into engineering. The Indian education system, for example, I grew up in India. Uh, it's very much prescriptive, yeah. as you know. Um, you know, and so it, it's sort of interesting. You know, I, I um, stayed in engineering for a little while, but I didn't really like engineering that much. <laughs> Um, and so, so I wondered again, going back to this aptitude question, uh, which is if you have some sort of systematic education in place, it might reveal your aptitude as you get closer to picking a profession, perhaps. Uh, yeah, I, you know, that perspective on things is, um, let's just say less popular than it, than it used to be, <laughs> um, the, um, you know, it's called ableism, that we focus on abilities and often miss the skills that uh, people that we might label, label in some way as not having skills. So I'm, I'm reluctant yeah. to, you know, but I, I'm not naive. I think, yes, um, by the time someone's starting to go into career, I do definitely believe some people are better at some things than, than other things. And, but, um, yeah. 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 One of the things that intrigued me, David, uh, and I don't know if I understand this correctly, uh, there is a little bit of a negative correlation between spatial abilities and verbal abilities. Is that true or not? Um, not, not that I know of. Um, okay. the, it's, the, it's the first split in the hierarchy of intelligence. But generally speaking, so... Yeah. So spatial and verbal would be the least correlated, but not negatively. I, I don't know okay. of a negative correlation. So least correlated, meaning if you're good in spatial thinking, you are not necessarily good in, in verbal and vice versa. Right. Even though intelligence is a broad, you know, sort of broad category right. in measurement. Okay. Yeah, the most okay. popular theory of intelligence is a sort of hierarchically organized so that they get more and more sub factors. And so spatial and verbal are among the least correlated. They're the first split, but nevertheless, you know, there is some basic yeah. correlation. Yeah. 
Okay. Okay. So, uh, I mean, this might be, you know, sort of putting people in boxes, but uh, is it generally true uh, from an, you know, kind of output perspective that we look at STEM, you know, really good STEM students, they, they are less, slightly less in the depth of verbal capabilities in terms of, you know, uh, speaking to people and, and uh, literature and things like that, or we don't find that at all? Well, <laughs> back as far as the 60s and 70s, there were some studies that saw it, as, at least amongst boys, the most ex- extreme talented um, were particularly talented in, in math or spatial and not as talented in verbal. But those are, are really extreme examples. If you look at uh, a Northwestern engineering or chemistry professor, I'm actually amazed at how highly verbal they are (laughs) too. So they can do everything I can do and then a whole lot more. (laughs) (laughs) And verbal capabilities are, I believe are, you know, uh, highly correlated in the brain. Whereas you said the spatial capabilities are sort of the first decision point in, in terms of that hierarchy, right? Yes. Um, so mathematics is not one ability. It involves, yeah. you know, like there's a lot of verbal in mathematics as well. So mathematics is kind of a higher order skill that combines several different underlying abilities. Hmm. But you're right. Spatial ability and verbal ability do seem fairly separable. Um, some people can use either strategy. We're, we're doing a study, I've been involved in a study right now that's looking at, uh, with fMRI, brain imaging, yeah. the consequences of taking a, a class, the geospatial semester, a friend of mine invented that um, is designed to enhance spatial thinking and make people approach problems spatially or to realize the possibility of doing so. And we actually are finding that it may be changing their approach to doing some tasks that weren't specifically trained, like syllogisms, you know, (laughs) if A is equals B and B equals C, does A have to equal C or not? And you have to verify that sentence is a classic (laughs) psychological task. And um, there's been debates about how do people do this? Do they form a mental map of the different relations or they do it through a set of logical propositions, you know, Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily. So um, the answer to that appears to be both, but there are preferences for one way or the other. And that with spatial training, it might sort of shift people mm-hmm. to. The, and it's interesting that some of the, um, the brain act changes involve uh, sort of decrease in activation. So it, it becomes these students sort of more quickly and immediately recruit spatial areas to solve the problem. So there's less sort of higher order, like how am I going to do this? Um, And so that's, you know, an interesting effect that does show malleability and the involvement Mm of uh, training. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to uh, jump into a recent paper that you have uh, situating space using a discipline focused lens to examine spatial thinking skills. Yes. And so here you're looking at specific professions like medicine and uh, geology and things like that, right? Yes. So, so yeah. what do you find there? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so, yes, I do believe there's a core spatial ability, but the way this gets fleshed out in practice is really 
going to vary from profession to profession. So for one of my favorite example is geologists. Yeah. Um, when we study spatial cognition and since the 60s, uh, perhaps the, the most commonly used task involves a mental rotation where you have to, for example, look at one block and then imagine whether the, block, the other block could be rotated into position or are they mirror images? So you could, for example, you know, turn your left hand in the same plane and you'll never match up with your right hand. That's why uh, we have so many mismatched gloves because <laughs> you have to, have to be handed. So um, the, um, but geologists through, through the collaboration of many people with, with the natural sciences, um, other colleagues found that Geologists, for example, have to think about um, things like shearing and non-rigid transformations where things bend and, and don't necessarily rotate as a whole. And, mm. you know, as an engineer, those are, when forces are applied, it's not always so simple as just a shift or rotation. And rock layers break differently. And so um, the geologists have revealed that, you know, that, Spatial thinking in context matters. And I'll, I'll never forget uh, looking at an x-ray with my dentist and, I, you know, and I'm saying, okay, how much is this going to hurt and how much is going to cost? And, I, and I'm looking at the thing and I'm, I'm making inferences. And he says, you know, you can't do that. This is a two-dimensional image and you have a three-dimensional tooth. So you're making inferences that really aren't justified. And I was like, you know, you're right. And so his expertise is constraining looking mm. how he looks at it. A really interesting story in, in surgery that's that's happened past 25 years or so is this is the switch from almost all surgeries were open to a big reliance on laparoscopic surgery yeah. whenever it's possible. And that took a lot of retraining. Um, certainly before the Da Vinci robot, it was basically a two-dimensional mm -hmm. image on a screen and mm. surgeons were very used to seeing things in three dimension. And so they had to sort of relearn and reestimate. And the, then the Da Vinci robot came along and simulated three dimensions for them, uh, allowed them to see in three dimensions and actually better probably than they could with the naked eye. But mm. that's an example of, of changes in practice that happen as a result in changes in technology. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. No, so um you you get a lot of expertise by experience in a profession um but let me make a hypothesis and you can correct me if it's not right um but the number of configurations that you're likely to encounter uh is limited i would argue and so it is you know within a profession um it's not kind of broad spatial thinking, but sort of uh, expertise constrained spatial thinking, is it or not? Yeah, I think that's an excellent analysis. And in fact, I think expertise is in part in many fields, knowing what not to attend to. Because, you know, if, if you look at a chessboard, you as a novice, you may be overwhelmed with the number of possibilities. But with expertise yeah. come an understanding of patterns of attack and defense. And that, um, allows you not to have to consider every possibility. And I would also argue that's like 
the history of artificial intelligence, okay, um, in the mid-90s, I think, IBM got a computer that could beat the grandmaster. But the fact that it took about 40 years of effort shows, you know, people were pretty good. And then a lot of the reason machines can win now is just the sheer number of calculations. This is exaggeration, but maybe they can check every option. Um, right. And humans can't. And so the difference was, in part, eliminating possibilities. Focus is a simultaneously knowing what to attend to and knowing what to ignore. And I think that our, we are tuning our senses in expertise. And uh, yeah. I'm really interested in spatial expertise. Yes. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. So the fMRI um, project uh, that you're doing, you know, one of the things that uh, I'm thinking about now is, you know, so, so you, you take uh, somebody going into a profession uh, for the first time, you can see what the brain, how the brain uh, activity is. Uh, and that person over time, if you do sort of a longitudinal study, um, I suspect over time, uh, that person will reduce, uh, you know, sort of the spatial um, understanding into heuristics. And, and potentially, you know, when, when that person becomes a real expert, there is potentially no need for spatial thinking oh, because everything is sort of reduced to some uh, finite exactly, heuristics, right? That's exactly yeah. what I've written. I don't know if I sent you that paper, but exactly. And okay. and so and this is one of our theories of why organic chemistry is so hard for the novice. I'm fond of saying organic chemistry is the greatest source of psychology majors because people think you know they're going to be chemists or doctors, and then organic chemistry comes along. And they decide, well, maybe I should switch into something that's uh, a little different. And um, I do think the evidence shows that for the expert chemist, they know a great deal about these molecules and they can recognize them right away. Mm -hmm. So if I say, is this a rotated or a mirror image? That's like a basic fact to them. That's like knowing their mother's name. And so, you know, something they could recall right away. Whereas a novice student, has to go through the laborious process of mental rotation yeah. to compare it. So that's why I think a little bit of training could get people over that hump where at first it is very reliant. This is actually a general uh, finding is that when we're first learning a skill, general ability matters more than as we become more expert. Yeah, expertise is in some ways tuning our abilities to do exactly what we need rather than relying on the most general approach. You're, you're yeah. absolutely right. I really, that's great. <laughs> yeah, one, one of the areas I was thinking, uh, uh, David, is that um, it, it's a slightly different. So if you think about financial markets, traders, right? Um, what, it's not necessarily spatial, but there is a connection there, which is looking for patterns uh, in the data, yep. right? Uh, and so, again, you can see very expert traders over time reducing that to set of heuristics that become sort of second nature for them. Uh, and I wondered if it's sort of the same process happening there. Absolutely. Um, we tend, experts are actually often dismissive of their abilities because they don't realize how much they're doing. Oh, I just yeah. see it. You know, well, to be able to see it took you five to 10 years of intensive practice and knowing what to look for, knowing what not to look for. 
And, you know, in the case, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe in some cases, uh, financial patterns are looking for certain kinds of shapes, you know, yeah, shoulders yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And the same is, is definitely true in medicine, in chess and things like where you're looking for patterns and organization uh, in uh, radiology. You know, it's just there's all kinds of names that are very much about configurations. Um, we're also, I have a student in education who's working on the Chinese game of Go. Um, and, um, you know, there, as you know, is only a few years ago, we were able to get a computer to beat the Netflix. Right. And uh, part of it is the um, incredible number of combinations of permutations. And so uh, Go experts do learn patterns and, uh, and give them names like mouse or cut or Tiger mouth, I think. Um, I'm not a go expert, but um, <laughs> that is exactly right. But but you know, we're all experts in a way. I was like, like driving. We know instinctively when a situation merits our full attention and when we can relax a little bit. You shouldn't take your eyes off the road, of course. But um, situations and patterns emerge that we instinctively. Um, you know, hit the brake or turn or whatever it might be. So we're all experts in, in some way. Uh, one more example is like early mathematics. This is Phil Kelman's work out at UCLA. Um, children have to learn to see numbers. For example, mm. you know, 23.32 is <laughs> a smaller number than 100.3. But knowing how to parse the decimal is, a. It, he's argued it's a, um, an act of visual expertise. So learning to, so yes, it certainly applies for the highest level experts, but we're all carrying around some expertise. Reading, you know, it, it, it takes a good five years for children to become competent readers. And it's not that simple. You know, it, at first we have to differentiate one letter from another and there's all kinds of patterns and classic mistakes that people leave. Then we have to learn how they can be combined, how they, com how they relate to sounds. But uh, when you are, as most of us are now, expert readers, you know, you, you can pick up a thing and you don't have to sound it out. You immediately get the meaning from it without thinking about what you're doing. But, you know, we're all experts at some things. Yeah, so, so going back to the education aspect of this, David, so yeah, I don't know if this works, but uh, let me know what you think of it. Um, so are you arguing, you know, sort of, let's get the operating system uh, right uh, in the early education process. So that is really getting, you know, spatial capabilities, ability to think spatially, all those, all those skills, but not specialized, but just get the operating system uh, right. And then as you go into a profession, the, the real skill is to reduce that into applications, right? So they're, they're almost like there are two skills there because let me ask you this, um, you know, in one sense, you could say you, you could become, you know, very spatially aware and become very creative, let's say, uh, and you keep, you know, thinking about uh, possibilities uh, only. So, you know, one could argue somebody like Einstein, for example, you know, I, I think he always thought in terms of, you know, sort of spatial visualization of things, right? Uh, and so that goes in the creative angle. But for a typical profession, 
there appears to be another skill which is reducing that into heuristics in a very efficient fashion. Do you see those two differently? Or no, I, I agree completely, but with one reservation. Um, yes. There's a great book by Jerome Grootman called How Doctors Think. And he talks about, yes, they develop heuristics uh, and those reduce the amount of work uh, tremendously. But there is a danger in relying on them too much because like you say, you're not seeing things. And every once in a while, you need to see something that's unusual. So yes, at one level, all you know, doctors know basic anatomy, but then at the same time, in any given operation, a surgeon may encounter unusual anatomy and they have to be prepared to deal with that as well. So uh, yes, I agree with you that it's mostly true, but I think two things, I think, Caution and creativity both require the ability to go beyond just relying on the heuristic. So heuristic, like in any heuristic, it does us a lot of good. It reduces cognitive effort. It frees up our attention. That's all great. But, you know, doctors can get go, go down the path to a wrong diagnosis pretty quickly if, they're, if they don't stop and say, how could I be wrong here? And, and that's right. what, you know, differential diagnosis when they say, okay, I think it's this, but what else could it be? Uh, that's right. the, the procedure that sort of keep, puts, a, puts a little bit of a, of a break on the pure use of heuristics. So I agree with you, but I also mm-hmm. think um, you have to kind of live in the cognitive moment too, make sure that this situation, that the heuristic should apply. Yeah, so that'll make sure, David, that some some of us will still have jobs after artificial intelligence and robotics oh, take over, yeah. because if it is completely reducible, then we can get rid of humans. Right, and that the artificial intelligence re- really helps us think about what's different and what's similar. So, computers are now you know orders of magnitude faster than the human brain, um, so they can do many many calculations per whatever unit of time than we can do, but we have this tremendously interconnected network that's been harder to emulate. So uh, artificial intelligence now can can learn visual patterns. There's absolutely no doubt about that. But then we have this very fast and rapid catastrophic drop-off when little tweaks, uh, like changing the the letters from, the letters are black and the background is white and you reverse that Human has right. no um, problem with it, but the computer may be completely off and have to basically start at ground zero again. And that shows, right. you know, we're higher order thinkers. So, yeah, artificial intelligence is changing a lot, but I think humans still have some very special advantages. <laughs> right, right. And so, so what were the sort of the, the highest level conclusions from this paper? Um, the highest uh, from the... Um, you mean the situating space or? Yeah, you know, yeah, the situation. Yeah, okay. uh, the highest level and, conclusion and is that if there is a general spatial ability, it's going to be sort of fleshed out in this area expertise. And so, um, yes, we, we can measure spatial ability, but that alone isn't going to get you to the level of expertise. So we really need more knowledge on how you become expert in these different fields. Um, yeah. So it's an interplay between domain knowledge 
and yeah, wow, you're yes, exactly, <laughs> right. So, so, so it's it's sort of uh, it's it's necessary but not sufficient. You need both of those things to become an expert. Probably, I you know, I'm yeah. I'm actually you know there are certain there are low spatial stem experts. They so I'm not a hundred percent sure mm. exactly how much you must okay. have, but it helps. Right, right. Um, I want to get into another topic that is um, that's in a different uh, different area. So, uh, this is another paper of yours: the development of children's gender oh, yes. science stereotypes. <laughs> uh, a meta-analysis of five uh, decades of U.S. draw a scientist studies. Yes. Uh, you're talking about. Yeah, let me let me the, first credit yeah. the first author of that paper was a former graduate student, David Miller. And he just did an incredible job to look at, there's, um, there's this task that's been around since the early 70s, and it's very simple. You just ask children to draw a scientist. When this was first done um, in the 70s, uh, some ridiculous number were male, I think well under 1% were female. So almost all children drew male, male scientists. And, you know, we could tell by the length of the hair or whatever uh, and the clothes that they drew and things like that. I mean, not always, but oftentimes. And then the question we asked is, how are things changing? Have they changed? I mean, to some extent, children's uh, emphasis on male scientists might have been the f because they don't see very many. At the, in the 70s, there weren't that many female scientists. And fortunately, that's changed to some extent. And we wanted to see if those changes are reflected in, in this task. So just this is a meta-analysis. We didn't ask anybody to draw, but we did analyze dozens of studies of other people who had asked children to draw. And so we could look at mm. the effects of, of two variables that are going to sound the same, but they're not. One is how old the children are. And the second is when the measurement's taken, like what decade. So is an eight-year-old in 1990 similar to an eight-year-old now? And right. actually, both things matter. So, um, yes, definitely the number of female um, scientists that are drawn has gone from nearly zero to about 30%. And that's good. Interesting, mm -hmm. This the evidence is a little weaker for this, but I think the signal was there that as children get older, they seem to actually decrease. This is the sad part. So it's a happy part and a sad part. The sad part is um, they may have actually decreased the number of um, female scientists that they drew. And we think it's sort of like on the part, the child's observing the world, you know, and thing. Hmm. But then stereotypes may kick in and, and they may get to, they may become more familiar with the cultural stereotype of the, of the man with the frizzy hair and start drawing that. So um, it's also, it could also be data that they're using, right? So for instance, uh, and this is not uh, a big enough impact, but it's uh, it's um, symptomatic. You look at Nobel what? laureates, for instance. Yeah. Uh, Nobel, Nobel laureates, right? And you don't find too many females there. Uh, well, even now. this year. <laughs> This year, yeah. this year is different, but but generally speaking, so the older kids maybe they are looking to data that is different from what the younger ones right. are using, 
And when we when we look up, so to speak, uh, the further up you go in an organization, you know, in a scientific organization, in in recognition, uh, that disparity still exists significantly. So that may be the the data that they yes, if, be wait, there's lots of explanations, but I think that the strongest signal in that paper is that there are definitely more female scientists, and children's drawings do reflect that, but not quite as much as they should. So um, there are still stereotypes that that people ascribe to, but there is also it's, it's it is moving in the right direction. And I was very happy to see both chemistry and physics Nobel Prize were for women uh, this year. I know, yeah, yeah, one year, but you know, times they are a change. Yeah. Right, right, and this is a, this meta study is this really big uh, N of twenty one thousand. Uh, so it's it's quite quite. That's a large putting together every single child that's drawn in every single study. So, yes, it's twenty one thousand, but we didn't yeah. test any of them. <laughs> Meta analysis is combining studies. But, by the way, a lot of the yeah. polls now for president uh, are basically meta analysis. Nate Silver is far more complicated yeah. this, but some people are arguing that a meta analysis is really all you need. Uh, those yeah. guys got the 2016 prediction wrong, so we'll see. I like the simplicity <laughs> of it, but it has to be right. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you got uh, you know uh, artificial intelligence doing the the voting, I think uh, the results yeah. will be very clear. Humans, humans are yes, both difficult. in the voting booth and on the telephone when asked. So. <laughs> You know, I just in my research methods class, I'm, you know, going through just how challenging this is. You know, why can't we just call people, ask them who they're going to vote for? They go and vote for it and we can predict it. Well, there's, you know, humans are complicated and these are very sensitive topics and some people don't want to reveal, you know, the reluctant voter and these things. So um, we uh, polling and sampling are just really hard. Social sciences. It seems simple, but it's not, you know, sampling is really hard to do well. Yeah, anytime humans are involved, uh, the problem gets uh, much more yeah. difficult. That's why I'm, an, I'm, uh, I'm a proponent of, you know, uh, just using machines Does, when you can. Machines for uh, <laughs> recognizing financial, I, I imagine there's a lot of artificial intelligence in that now too. Yeah, that, that's, in the, you know, uh, it is interesting. Uh, it's sort of related, so I want to get your perspective on this. Uh, in the financial markets, we find machines are actually a lot better now than humans. And, they, they, you know, there are multiple reasons for it. But one of them is that humans yes. are also emotional. And so you have, you know, you can think about this in the medical field as well. So, you know, generally people say you don't want a robot doing the, the surgery. Uh, but, you know, I, I think we're going to get, uh, get technology a lot better as we look forward. And I think empirically we're going to show that uh, the robotic surgery is going to be, um, you know, less likely, you know, likelihood of uh, getting into trouble. But we already see that in the financial markets, David, that machines are a lot better yeah. than humans. Well, there's an interesting question there is, is how much can we predict? I mean, it, I'm always wondering whether we actually, there's actually a signal there that can be picked up and reliably predicted. It's pretty chaotic. 
Yeah, it it is the, the problem here is that it, it is you know you have this yes. thing called emotions, uh, and so you have to that has a negative effect on the right. outcomes, right? And so so when you combine capabilities with that with that emotions baggage, uh, the outcome of a human is actually less compelling compared to a machine. That is, that uh, I don't I don't think we are anywhere close to that in in scientific professions like uh, medicine or you looked at geology here, I don't think we are anywhere close to any of those things because emotions don't play that much of a role, I believe, in, in scientific encounters. Well, I certainly agree with you relative to the average investor. I don't think that people are ever totally devoid of emotion, nor would we want to be. Like our passions for different topics you know, may have been what motivated people to make uh, discoveries. But I certainly agree with what the general thrust of what you're saying. Yeah. And so so in conclusion, David, you know, so I want to look at sort of the education policy yes. question here. Um, you know, you have shown um, early education and spatial thinking uh, has beneficial effects, regardless of what you do uh, career wise later. Um, and so. So what, what, would, what would you suggest from a policy perspective in education? Right. First of all, I would say we have to involve teachers in these decisions because although I can prescribe things, I mean, it, it, the expertise of teachers and the involvement of teachers is critically important. But to answer your question, yeah. um, I would look for educational opportunities in children's everyday play. Can I give you an example from a colleague, Kathy Hirsch-Pasick yeah. at Temple University? She has invented these things called learning landscapes where we build spatial games into the everyday environment. So for example, when you're waiting for a bus, there could be a game where the child is asked to, to do patterns or something like that, or they, they try to augment the, the cityscape with um, games. So I think in terms of teacher education for early childhood education, just to recognize the importance of this. And, you know, I, I don't know if I can point to where this quote came from, but every good kindergarten teacher knows the value of patterning and um, learning different patterns. And so I don't think we need so much of a radical change as for teachers to know it's already there, but now to make it part of attention and to show children what they're doing and help children make connections from one context to another. There certainly are programs that, that emphasize spatial thinking. And I think, I think it's catching on. Um, the other thing is, as we're educating, you know, there's a big debate about, are we going to, for older kids, are we going to stay on this college for all? Or are we educating some people for, you know, skilled crafts and, and sort of restore the American um, the Exactly. Like and we've, we've pretty much, yeah. I mean, not yeah. exclusively, but we've lost it. The paradox is there's many high paying jobs that go unfilled because of the lack of labor, prepared labor. So these tasks, these kinds of things um, do also require a lot of spatial thinking and experience. So both, you know, in the college track and the um, apprenticeship trade school track, I think require spatial thinking. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Singapore before. Um, 
what what do you know the the countries that are sort of advanced in this area uh what i mean is uh, bringing in space you know that it's an excellent question the truth of it is no i don't know exactly about cultural variation uh and i i really i don't know if we know that it's a really good i know about cultural variation in mathematics and singapore is always stressing yeah. math and science but i don't know how spatial this is an excellent question and i think i'm going to try to pursue it <laughs> but i i'm yeah the, the other thing i want to ask you it also has some implications yes. for video games right so there is a, there is a negative baggage associated with video games for a variety of reasons but uh it also has uh, yes it positive yeah. impact right especially it's a dual edged sword i mean yeah, go ahead. We so often focus on the extreme. So we have this child who's addicted to video games and never goes outside and that becomes the example. Well, that doesn't need to be the example if you know parents can regulate the amount of time, but some of the spatial reasoning that's involved in video games almost certainly seems to help spatial cognition. So, um, you know, with yeah. within reason, they can be extremely helpful. In general, media in general can be very helpful. I right. I don't see it as something to be afraid. If you watch the American Academy Pediat of Pediatrics history about this, in the I, in the early two yeah. thousands, I think they uh, recommended that no child under two years of age basically have anything to do with any kind of media, um, and they have sort of gradually opened that a bit. Uh, so um, mm. I think things may be changing. If parents go to the pediatrician and the pediatrician tells them that their children shouldn't do these things, of course, parents won't do it, but within reason, they can be very, very useful. Now, I'm not talking about aggressive, violent video games. You know, I mean, we have to choose <laughs> carefully, but we choose carefully in the books that we read in the activities that we do, choosing carefully is just something parents and children have to do together. Uh, finally, uh, I think we're going to find yeah. there's been a lot of video game playing during the COVID pandemic. So we, it's possible we might see some increases in spatial ability after this thing. Maybe that would yeah, be one exactly. good thing that I don't yeah, know. It's exactly. speculation, but um, you know, it's been yeah, very I, hard for kids. Yeah, so, yeah I, I was. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, actually, there is an opportunity uh, here, right? Because you have a lot of online yeah. stuff happening with COVID. And so from an education perspective, at all levels, there might be an opportunity to right. think about so it. Right. So when COVID first happened, it was kind of like an emergency thing. What can we get online as quickly as we can? Um, but I think even when the virus dies down and we return to somewhat normal life, I think one permanent change that's happened is a greater acceptance of online learning and for young children. So um, that opens up a lot of opportunities. So again, I, you have to be careful as you do with any educational technology, but um, we are now, I don't think we're gonna have as much age separation in online education as we had before. I think younger children will be able to do it. I, right. I think we've realized that it's not necessarily terrible and can have some advantages. That being said, I'd like kids to be able to go to, back to school as soon as possible. 
Sounds yeah. good. Yeah, let, let's hope for that. Um, uh, yeah. So this has been great, David. Uh, thanks so much for spending time with me. And uh, good Thank luck with, so much. Uh, with this research. Bye. Thank you.